0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, and I am in New York City, in sunny California. We have Corey Shockey <laughs> laughing because she's happy to be in California and yes. is getting that vitamin D that they don't provide in England from the so sun. So true. Uh, and somewhere in you know, a deep sub-basement of the Georgetown University S- School of Law in her um, new uh, suite uh, associated with her exalted position there uh, is Rosa Brooks. Did do they give you like a, a like a walnut lined or mahogany lined sort of they didn't suite give me of anything. rooms? They gave
1: me a picture. They didn't the <laughs> need
2: to give her anything. She's already Albus Dumbledore. She's she's got it going on.
0: Albus Dumbledore <laughs> Brooks. Interesting. Do you actually know who Albus Dumbledore is, Rosa?
1: Of course I know who Albus Dumbledore is. I I read every single goddamn Harry Potter volume out loud to my children over a period of I think it was 27 years. <laughs> um, <laughs> Which, given that your oldest,
0: given that your oldest child is 16, that's a little offbeat. <laughs> <Is> it? <laughs> okay. well, it
1: took a long time. So... time there, you, there is a time changer, as you may as you may know.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's, uh.
2: <laughs> okay, well, let me just say how fortunate the children of Rosa Brooks' arc of influence are, since in the Shockey Tribe, youngsters have to adjudicate Bob Gibson's career wins above replacement value and <laughs> scoff at the notion that Mike Trout is somehow in contention to be the best baseball player of all time based on wins above replacement
0: value. Okay. I, by the way, have to tell everybody that that was a dig at me for proposing this (laughs) offline, even though Mike Trout is from New Jersey and I was just standing up for New Jersey. Um, I should also add that among the many regrets that I have about my life, my mother used to work at a place called Scholastic Publishing. And one day she sent me a book for my tiny daughters saying they've got this book out now and it's apparently quite successful in the UK and I got a copy from one of the people visiting from the UK and it's about a bunch of wizards here you go and it was the first (laughs) volume of Harry Potter in the English edition like three weeks before it came out or something like that and so Mm. I like gave it to my daughters who put it in their bed and peed on it and sucked on it and you know of course the book is long gone like five years ago my mother called me and said Um, That book, it's now worth $30,000. Could you just get (laughs) Um, And I said, book, you mean pacifier, but in any event, (laughs) um, that was... um... It's a really great move. So um, let's just pick a couple of stories up. Um, uh, And the first one I want to start with, even though it was a little earlier in the week, is the revelations that took place on Monday that there are 25 people in the White House that senior security officials said shouldn't have a security clearance because of foreign connections, because of financial issues, because of criminal convictions, uh, and so forth. I thought it was quite interesting that in the description in a hearing in front of the House Oversight Committee, the whistleblower involved in this said there are two senior White House officials who fall into this category, as as if we had to guess, since they're clearly Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump. But I just find this, you know, to people who've had security clearances, like the three of us have had, and who take this process kind of seriously, so shocking. If this had happened in any other administration, this would be the big scandal. That there are 25 people that they said shouldn't be there, shouldn't have classified information, and who do. So, Corey, shocked? Not shocked?
2: Not shocked, because as we have discussed so many times before, the Trump administration is basically an Elmore Leonard novel. And these are grifters who think they're geniuses, but and behave in a way blithely um, in violation of law, norm, decency, and the law is beginning to catch up with them. It's terrible that this isn't a major story, but the good news is that, that the law is actually catching up with them.
0: By the way, I like the Elmore Leonard thing, and it just gives me an idea which is that when the movie of the Trump administration is made, rather than having somebody who looks like Trump play Trump, um, we should have somebody who captures his spirit, a la the Elmore Leonard novels, but that would really irritate Trump. And so I nominate <laughs> Danny, Danny DeVito to play...
2: That's <laughs> excellent.
0: You know, you could just see Danny DeVito, little wig, and... And and he plays Trump behind a desk that his head just appears over the top of. Uh, I, no, I really I really like this. Rosa, where do you come out on all of this? Giving out secrets to people who shouldn't have them.
1: Well, I have somewhat more mixed. On the one hand, is the Trump administration grifters? Yes, it is. Um, do uh, have the slightest trust in? Senior your officials in the administration to be why, uh, what should be done with national secrets? No, I don't. That that all said, um, I think that the rules governing security clearances, the rules and the procedures governing security clearances, they're granting appeals from denials and so on, are Byzantine antiquated and often uh, irrational. Um, so So I also have no particular confidence that, absent the interference of said Trump administration grifters, that uh, the system as it existed prior to the Trump White House would somehow consistently or even mostly get it right. Um, I think that we have seen that we passed, given security clearances at a very high level to people who Made manifest the fact that they should not have ever had them. Uh, I'm thinking of people like Edward Snowden. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, who had no foreign ties, no business to, You know, nothing there that would that that in fact were quite bad at predicting who is going to misuse classified information. As as we've discussed on this podcast and other at other times, we also greatly overclassify many things that shouldn't be classified. It's extraordinarily hard for people with quote-unquote foreign ties to get high-level security clearances at a minimum. There are often extensive delays, which uh, works in practice to keep our uh, intelligence community and those in other agencies such as the Defense Department with high-level uh, clearances. It works to keep that group uh, uh, white and generally more clueless about the rest of the world than it would otherwise be. So so I I think it's Completely appropriate for us to respond to this not at all surprising news by saying, "Boy, you know, however we handle security clearances, whatever the process is, it shouldn't be up to a bunch of assholes uh, uh, who are who are going to, you know, profit from it to, you know, suddenly jump in and and intervene in decisions made by career civil servants." But I also don't think that should should make us uh, start claiming that the pre-existing system is anything other than frequently, as I said, arbitrary and antiquated.
0: Um, Well, yeah, and also, you know who got a legal security clearance is Donald Trump. Uh, (laughs) Being elected to
2: office gives you the right to have access to that. I I just want to say in defense of Donald Trump... Uh, that I am not sure that uh, that those hardworking civil servants that Rosa rightly extols the virtues of ought to be put in the position of determining that somebody, the American people, voted into a major office in the land, whether in Congress or to the presidency, shouldn't get a security clearance. I feel like, you know, Voters' judgments are the arc of our safety, and if they fail us, I I think there are limits to which we should allow unpolitical and therefore less accountable processes to be able to to substitute for our own bad judgment.
0: Yeah, well, yes, there's there's no question about that. Although you've got to wonder, Rosa, you know it's. Trump had a meeting with the Russians where he gave away information that was allegedly obtained by the Israelis that was classified. Um, there are 25 people who shouldn't have these kind of clearances. We don't have the benefit of the intercepts of U.S. government um, uh, officials that other governments do. But don't you have to wonder whether our allies are wondering whether they should be as as as? forthcoming as they have been in the past and sharing their intelligence with us?
1: I'm sure they are wondering exactly that, and I'm sure that quite a few of our allies are withholding information that in any other administration they would have gladly shared. But, but, you know, I wanted to echo Corey's point, and maybe put a slightly different twist on it. Um, You know, who decides what information should be classified in the first place, who decides what classified information uh, should be declassified or should be shared with what people, you know, that that's not, there's not some scientific formula for that. And, and it is an inherently political set of judgments. And when we pretend that it's something else, I don't think we do anybody a service. I, I also think, you know, part of the reason that I, I'm, a little reluctant to sort of start using uh, allegations about the improper sharing of um, national security secrets as, as a cudgel against Trump is because I think it's it's entirely easy to imagine, and and in fact we've we've seen it in the past. Similar charges uh, being used against people on the left, right? I mean, I mean, imagine a hypothetical. Uh, uh, American President from the Democratic Party, who was viewed by the right as uh, a traitor for for being anti-interventionist or for wanting to make peace with some adversary and who made the decision that some information sharing was appropriate. You know, I could see that person being pilloried. Um, even for doing something that, that the three of us might all agree was a good thing. So I you know I'm I'm somewhat uncomfortable with this being our our objection. You know, I, I, I I'm generally speaking in favor of creating and adhering to standardized policies with with mechanisms for creating exceptions that are themselves transparent. Um, and clearly, at from a process perspective, that that didn't happen here. Um, you know, and and I'm I you know, would nothing would shock me about the Trump administration in terms of the the either process fouls or or motivations that stem from a desire for personal gain of one sort or another. but but I nonetheless think that the the arguments that say, oh, but this violates our, our national security are, are probably somewhere between exaggerated and potentially dangerous in terms of the impact on, on uh, future actors and on the political discourse.
0: Well, clearly the way they treat um, security issues uh, is going to be one of the things that reflects on Trump as we get moving forward into 2020. Um, and... Uh, There's always a debate among people in the foreign policy community as we get closer and closer to an election about whether or not foreign policy is really going to make a difference in the election. And of course, um, people typically say it doesn't. And in the last election, of course, Russian involvement became a central uh, issue, and U.S. relations with Russia became a central issue, and there are other Examples. I think uh, clearly Barack Obama was elected largely because uh, he repudiated George W. Bush's policies uh, in the Middle East with regard to the Iraq war um, and so on. So there are recent examples where foreign policy plays a bigger role. Um, there was an article in Vox uh, recently by Alex uh, Ward suggesting that Trump might be able to have a... Uh, a, a strong foreign policy narrative for himself saying he defeated isis uh he's sort of pruned things back with the north koreans made it a little safer embraced israel he's been pushing back on the bad guys he's been fixing trade problems military spending is on the rise europeans are spending more money on defense uh and so forth um and uh, let me turn to you Corey, um and say um, because frankly, as I read this, I'm becoming a little nauseous, so I'd like you to pick up the talking. <laughs> um, uh, uh, we, you know, what, How does this affect your um, digestion?
2: <laughs> so I share your view that Alex Ward's article uh, describing how foreign policy could be a, an election winner for Trump, did rock me back on my heels and and here's the list of achievements again it it's gonna be it surprised me how how strong the case can sound he defeated ISIS he stopped nuclear missile nuclear and missile testing by North Korea no president's done more for Israel he's pushing back on regimes in Iran, Venezuela and Russia Fixing long-standing trade problems with Mexico, Canada, and China, increasing military spending, getting the Europeans to spend more, uh, and you know he's on his way out of Afghanistan. And again, those are every foreign policy expert would start would start busily litigating all of those. Uh, just to take my favorite one, uh, which is the North Korea example. President Trump has managed to make war with North North Korea more likely and hasn't prevented them from getting nuclear weapons and missiles that can hit the United States. So he's aggravated the problem without solving it. I think our challenge is less a substantive challenge of what is the What's the real status of these national security issues and how do we judge America's foreign policy choices in managing those issues? Then it is, have we finally started turning keys in the lock so that the barrage of inaccuracies and bravado that President Trump presents um, gets gets halted and you can get traction for for actual conversation about these things. I think our real challenge is a communications challenge and a political challenge because the president and his folks are so good at deflecting, at, so good at creating so much tumult and chaos that people have a hard time paying attention. As you said at the start of this podcast, David, like the security clearance issue alone should be a major scandal, and it, it can't even get bandwidth or attention or oxygen, whichever your preferred metaphor is for, um, for addressing problems. We have to figure out the communications and the political challenge of how do we get traction against this administration's story of its achievements.
0: I'm really, really tempted to go and litigate each one of these points as you suggested, uh, and in fact have been doing it in my mind the whole time you've been talking. But rather than spare, uh, to, you know, deprive Rosa of the right to do that, I, I'll let her go first.
1: Uh, I'm not going to um, <laughs> do that. Right. I mean, so and and as as Ward's article notes, um, each of these purported achievements. Uh, comes with so many caveats that at the end you're not really left with much of an achievement, and in some cases it becomes uh, the opposite of an achievement. Um, but but I think it, to his to his hardcore base, it won't make any difference. Um, to his hardcore base, you could take every single one of the uh, achievements, you could you could reverse it, and it still wouldn't make any difference. I mean, I mean, you know, you could say, it just because it well, I'm that doesn't make any sense, but it just doesn't matter to his base. They don't care. Uh, they don't care at all. If you say to them, uh, Trump has been tougher on Russia than any other president, they will cheer. If you say to them, Trump has befriended Russia more than any other president, they will cheer. If you say both at once, they will cheer. Um, so I don't think I think that they're just as we talk about irreconcilables amongst the Taliban um, there are there are those within Trump's core base group of supporters who have not been are not and will not be influenced by information that is new or by arguments that say oh yes he says this but in fact it's that um, and there there's a ton of, of evidence from you know, cognitive and behavioral psychology that explains why why human beings are not terribly good. In fact, most human beings, not just Trump supporters, but most of us are not, are not do not tend to be uh, affected in our views by by new information that would appear to contradict something we already believe. Um, so, you know, I think the the good news is that the yeah I, I, well, I, I should say I think I think something similar is true for those who view themselves as, you know, hardcore Trump opponents that not, you know, nothing is going to change their minds either. There's not, you know, Trump is not going to if there's some actual achievement, they're not going to go, "Oh, I guess he's better than I thought he was." They're still going to hate him. Um and the only group for electoral purposes that really matters is that rather small uh, swing group in the middle and the good news there is that that group actually does seem to be Incorporating new information and paying some attention to reality rather than spin, and that group has been quite steadily turning against Trump. Um, so, in that in that sense, I'm not I'm not wholly pessimistic about the outcome of this. But but I I do think that that's probably the only group of people um, who we're talking about and to whom we need to be talking because everybody else has already made up their minds.
0: I think you're very charitable to suggest that it's confirmation bias, which is what you were getting at, uh, in terms of when people listen to these stories and see what they want to see in them. Uh, There's also uh, a very little-known psychological phenomenon known as stupidity bias, Um, (laughs) (laughs) which which I, I think does play some role uh, in all of this, um, I, I, you know, I just can't help it. You know, you say he defeated ISIS, but actually, there are tens of thousands of ISIS troops. Uh, we did seem to set back the effort to establish a caliphate, but a lot of that effort occurred under Obama. And oh, by the way. Uh, and the punchline of this is that Syria remains with Assad and with Russia and with Iran, and um, the the risks within the region are not diminished. Uh, as Corey pointed out, nuclear missile testing by North Korea um, has continued it hasn't stopped there the, the, that's the opposite of the truth actually is cited in this article um uh and uh the, the situation is more dangerous than it was uh you may have made uh, the, the government of israel happy not the people of israel but having said that moving the embassy uh, making this sort of ham-fisted effort with regard to the golan heights ignoring human rights violations has made everybody else in the region less happy and thus the region less dangerous, pushing back on regimes in Iran, Venezuela and Russia. Well, first of all, in the case of Russia, that's the opposite of the case, and he's given them many, many benefits. And in the case of Iran, uh, while he may have pulled uh, Rosa's beloved Jikpoa out of the Uh, picture what he has done has made the situation more dangerous and let's not forget this recent ridiculous decision to give the Saudis nuclear weapons. Uh, We'll see where it takes us on Venezuela. Uh,
2: Don't you mean nuclear energy?
0: Yeah, nuclear energy, excuse me, I'm sorry I misspoke. Uh, Nuclear technology is actually what I meant to say. Um, He's fixing long-standing trade problems. Uh, No, he's not so far. We'll have a deal with China, but it won't actually address um, the core issues regarding export controls and IP. Um, our relationship with our trading partners is is worse. Has not been resolved in many core cases, and there's no clarity whether the USMCA is going to get going to get passed. Military spending is on the rise incrementally, um, but uh, it's roughly you know in all real terms exactly what it was before. Whether the Europeans are allocating more money on defense or not, they are. Uh, the state of the European alliance is the worst that it's ever been. We may pull out of Afghanistan. The other half of that point is that we are handing the keys back to the Taliban, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, ignoring climate change, uh supporting the Saudis uh in 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 Yemen, loving dictators, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The record I think is terrible. The question and I'm sorry, I just couldn't help it, Corey, but but, but No, uh,
2: David, that was fabulous. Bravo <laughs>
0: but 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 the point is, is anybody gonna care? I mean, right. Ro- Rosa talks about biases, but we're gonna get to this election. The av- half of the American families have less than thousand dollars in savings, so they go to bed every night. What they're worried about is, are they gonna get a toothache tomorrow, and is it gonna bankrupt them? Um, inequality is growing. Uh, the country is divided. Domestic issues loom large and personalities loom even larger. So is, do you think there is, and and by the way, I think people are getting kind of numb to the Russia thing. Do you think there is a foreign policy issue that could be central to the discussion in 2020? Uh,
2: Yes. So, so, one of the pieces of good news and also good fortune for our country is that we haven't had a major foreign policy crisis in the Trump administration. And that's fabulous because the Trump administration is not particularly well equipped to handle a major foreign policy crisis. So if we, if we uh, presume that that trend will continue and there's not a major crisis to dominate it. I do think what do you do about China Uh, has the potential to be a big foreign policy crisis. Um, Other than that, I think uh, the, wow, remember the days when people liked us and, and don't we make ourselves more secure when we cooperate with others? I think those two have the potential to get traction.
0: Rosa?
1: I think those are ones, though, that will have traction only with people for whom they already have traction. Uh, you know, my guess, I mean, going back to my argument a few minutes ago, that the the Trump supporters won't change, the diehard Trump uh, opposition will not change, um, and that it's a pretty small group of people for whom any of this could make a difference, you know, in other words, who haven't completely made up their mind. Um, I suspect the only thing that could really change the calculus and shake up some of the people whose minds are pretty made up would be something on the scale either of, you know, God forbid, another major terrorist attack on U.S. soil of the 9-11 variety, or, you know, open conflict involving a lot of U.S. troops being deployed somewhere and potentially getting killed somewhere, Uh, you know, that, that, that if one of the many parts of the world in which things could escalate if things actually did escalate dramatically I think that could change the calculus but but barring either of those two things you know or a massive reset or a massive recession which which also could happen linked that is in in very clear ways can be politically linked to foreign policy decisions you know e.g. to Trump's trade policy or something like that I think barring something really dramatic uh, I can't imagine one way that that foreign policy issues would have a powerful impact on the next election one way or the other.
0: Well some Democrats would say Corey that the issue of restoring America's standing in the international community is one that could and that's why we need to elect a guy like Joe Biden who has many years of foreign <laughs> policy experience um,
2: Let me just remind of two things. I'm sorry to interrupt, David, but but I can't I know you're baiting me with the Joe Biden reference, and I'm absolutely going to sink my teeth into it, because not only did uh, Robert Gates, that fine public servant, serious analyst of the world and superb Secretary of Defense say Joe Biden has been wrong about every foreign policy issue of his lifetime. But allow us to recall that Sarah Palin fought him to a standstill when she debated him in the 2008 election. That is
0: really harsh.
2: I know it's not nice, but it is also true.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, it, it is also true. Joe Biden is a terrible presidential candidate. He's proven that time and time again since he first wanted to become president when he popped out of his mother's womb and <laughs> and you know, which was a while ago, by the way. But... but
1: he has a strong interest in identifying different types of shampoo by smell, and that's a, a good thing. In a man. <laughs>
2: oh Rosa. <laughs>
0: Um, Rosa, go on. Can can <laughs> no, Joe I Biden's ability to restore America's standing be a big issue, and should it make him the Democratic nominee?
1: I think that anyone currently running for president on the Democratic side um, would be viewed by most of the rest of the world with enormous relief. And uh, uh, the criteria the rest of the world will mostly be applying is not Trump.
0: Okay, so except Tulsi Gabbard. I think you meant except Except, Tulsi Gabbard.
1: Except Tulsi Gabbard.
0: (laughs) Who is literally Elizabeth Jennings from the Americans. You know, she is (laughs) clearly a, a...
2: Okay, you are giving her a swath of credit for competence that I really, really don't think you should be doing.
0: Yeah, no, I'm well. I mean, I don't have I didn't, I don't even understand how she could be in the mix. <laughs> but on the other hand, uh, Donald Trump's in the mix, so I guess anything any anything is possible. Um let me switch. We have ten minutes to go. Let me switch briefly. Yesterday I got an email and somebody said and by the way, we were taping this on Monday, but I got an email. Uh, from a uh, editor at the Daily Beast and he said, what do you think of these reports that the Saudis hacked into Jeff Bezos' phone and found out all this bad stuff, which Jeff Bezos' security consultant, Gavin DeBecker, had asserted. Um, and uh, you know, I, I he said, why, why don't you write something about that? So I, like, dutifully, after driving up from Washington, D.C. to New York, sat at my computer and um, in an hour hammered out something and that was the first thing that came to my mind, which is Saudi Arabia is America's worst friend. You know, They're our worst ally out there. They take advantage of the president. They manipulate the president. Then they kill Americans. Then they hack other Americans. They use American weapons in wars against innocents in places like Yemen. They sort of egg us on to conflicts like the conflicts that we uh, you know, the some in the president's uh, entourage want to have with uh, uh, the the Iranians. You know, they they say they've got uh, Jared Kushner in their back pocket. They, I mean, they had their ambassador in Washington. You know, luring this Washington Post reporter to his gruesome death. Um, there's 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 less and less to like about these people, and that's really quite saying a lot when you consider the role that they played in 9/11. Um, uh, and so, you know, I just thought I would pose to both of you this question, which is, as of right now, and there's plenty to choose from here, who is America's worst ally, whether it's their character? I mean, you know, the, the British are blowing themselves up. The Italians have become kind know, of reprehensible. I I was going to recommend them. Um, uh, et well, you know, go ahead. Pick pick, pick somebody, Corey.
2: Uh, I I agree. I pick Saudi Arabia. Uh, for all the reasons that you said, uh, this is a country that uh, relies on our protection and believes that they don't have to share our values or make choices that, that make us uh, sentimentally attached to them and that we nonetheless will have to defend them, have to excuse the torture of female rights activists in in prison will have to avert our eyes from the things that they do that make the world more dangerous um, and make it more dangerous specifically for the United States of America. Uh, So, so yeah, Saudis are the top of mind. The uh, interesting question that I'd love to see us explore in the future is... If oil ceases to be so important for the international economy, does that change Saudi Arabia's ability to be a major international player, especially if, because of the behavior of the Saudi government, they cannot draw the kind of international investment and cannot motivate The kind of economic and social change that will make the country sustainable economically and politically when the age of oil is over. I've always loved the former Saudi oil minister's statement that the Stone Age didn't come to an end for lack of stones and the oil age won't come to an end for lack of oil. But if the oil age comes to an end despite plentiful oil... That's a major strategic challenge for Saudi Arabia, and I hope will diminish American interest and support to the government of Saudi Arabia.
0: Yeah, but perhaps nothing could happen that would be better for um, the people of the region than, than green energy. Rosa, what, 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 who, do, who do you want to pick?
1: It's kind of a a hard choice. I, i've been I've been <laughs> i'm I'm tempted to nominate uh, the Brits simply because they're in such a state of of chaos, but that wouldn't really, really, really be quite fair since uh, we you know, who knows, they may yet pull a rabbit out of the hat, and so far, this does not weirdly enough does not appear to have affected their behavior on most of the international issues that matter to us. but uh, i was I was going to pick Israel. Um, just to be just to be different, um, because you two have already laid out the reasons why Saudi Arabia uh, deserves its place as a leader of the pack. but but but, I think Israel should be up there, too, in the sense that, you know the, the Israeli government has been veering further and further off to the right and in a, a bellicose and increasingly both self-destructive and regionally destabilizing way. Um, the current prime minister uh, uh, looks likely to end up in prison, which seems to be where he, where he belongs. And the kind of blindness of, of U.S. support for Israel, which often tends to equate uh, support for. Jews and opposition to anti-Semitism with support for an extreme right-wing government of Israel, those two things should not be equated. You know that that blindness of American support has been bad for Israel, bad for the United States, bad for the region, and remains a major a major source of regional angst and instability. It, you know Israel's role has been extremely pernicious. This is not to obviously excuse. Acts of terrorism uh, on the part uh, of Hamas or or other actors in the name of opposing Israeli expansionist tactics or Israeli policies, um, but but nevertheless, uh, you know, it's it's this is this is not a nice this is not a good state from the perspective of its policies in the region, um, and we should you know it, we we should not be doing as as Trump has done which is sort of increasing the Israel right or wrong, and right is actually just fine uh, uh, with us. Uh, we shouldn't be doing that, we should, if anything, be, be doing the opposite, which which Obama tried to do, albeit not very skillfully, um, but President Trump obviously has, doesn't have the slightest interest in doing.
0: I think those both were excellent answers because I agree with both of them. Um, uh, in fact, when I wrote this article, there were two paragraphs in it when I went through the other kind of candidates for the job and came up with the fact that Israel was a very close second to the Saudis. Yeah. Uh-huh. Do, do you agree with that, Corey? That the-
2: yes, I do. I think the near term partisan choices of the Netanyahu government to politicize support for Israel and to link it so closely. To his relationship with President Trump is actually really bad for Israeli security and and could create a backlash uh, among Americans. So I think it's a really dangerous game that Israel is playing, and I support what I support Rosa's um, description.
0: There you have it, folks. That's why we here are the core of the Deep State Radio group because we agree on everything. There's almost nothing that we don't agree on, although perhaps it would the, the wins above replacement but about Bob Gibson and Mike Trout produced a, <laughs> something something like a heated debate. and even in that case, I don't I don't really I don't really, um, I, don't really uh, dispute I know that.
2: very well you have an honest and rich appreciation of St. Louis Cardinal Bob Gibson's centrality in the pantheon of great baseball players, David.
0: Well, in fact, as I've told you, I think before on past episodes, the very first sort of, well, the second baseball, the first baseball memory I have is that my mother took me to my first baseball game at Candlestick Yards.
2: Well done for that nice lady.
0: And she took us and we saw the Giants play the Cubs in a doubleheader. We sat in right field and Willie McCovey hit all these. Uh, foul balls at our heads. Um, <laughs> that's great. and which was a great experience. But then, when I was old enough to take myself to a game, the Cardinals were my favorite team, and I was went, was going to a game, and I spent a whole night working on a t-shirt in which I carefully recreated the Cardinals logo of the Cardinals on a bat and so forth. Oh, most excellent in in magic markers and went to the baseball game and it rained and <laughs> For a number of days, there's this kind of reverse image on my chest, um, of of this running logo. But I back back in the day, I I, I shared this view, um, and I'm sure you did the same thing, Rosa. Yeah,
1: yeah, David.
0: Have you ever been to a baseball game, Rosa?
1: I have been to many baseball games, David, and and I I believe I've. I've told you, and I can't believe you've forgotten that my life's ambition until I was about eight was to be a pitcher for the New York Yankees. I, I even had a, a Yankees scrapbook where i cut out newspaper clippings and I that's collected wonderful. baseball cards. Yeah. Yep.
0: I know. I didn't remember. I didn't almost remem- all
1: pictures of me up until the age of 10 uh, depict me in a Yankees cap.
0: Oh, that's adorable. Do you mean when you were being shaken down by, by people in your... <laughs> Kindergarten. You think to that has something princess. to do with it? <laughs> no, I think it's adorable. And I did move on to become a Yankees fan right around the same age. Um, well, there you have it, folks. We've really covered all the important issues here. Um, Let me offer up a couple of announcements, as I did in the last episode in the coming weeks. Washington for Beautiful People will be uh, our other podcast. It will be available on a separate feed with Deep State Radio and National Security Magazine, continuing to be available in the Deep State Radio feed. And this week, our guest on National Security Magazine is Senator Chris Murphy. That podcast has done extremely well because we've had great guests. We hope you'll join us for that. This Thursday, we're launching uh, another uh, experiment, Deep State Radio Live at the Comedy Cellar, which is going to be our experts and some comedians talking about uh, things in a live format, so people will actually be able to join us by going to our YouTube channel and offering questions, uh, uh, later calling into the show. And once a month, we'll do a live thing at the Comedy Cellar uh, with some comedians and with some analysts, as we've done in the past on election nights. Uh, And our podcasts will remain uh, free, but uh, of course they come with some considerable cost to produce, so we really encourage you to please become a member. Members receive early access to the podcast via private member feed, uh, an ad-free experience, bonus content, discounts on swag, and a mug. Um, And if you want something else, if there's something else we could do to induce you to become a member, you know, just tweet at us at DeepStateRadio.com. We'll think if we can do it. I mean, we're not going to give you a car, but, you know, something that made some economic sense, we would do it. Because we would like you guys to become members and go out and get your friends to listen to this, which is, in our estimation and that of many people who we are not even related to, the best national security and foreign policy podcast that there is so join us again for deep state radio get more stuff at uh, the dsrnetwork.com and we'll see you again next week deep state radio is a production of the deep state radio network a division of trg interactive media our podcast today was produced in cooperation with goat rodeo productions and was supervised by ian enright